Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. Hi, Jim. Hi, David. It puts the lotion on its skin, or else it gets the hose again. <laughs> Put the fucking lotion in the basket! Don't make me hurt your dog, mister! <laughs> you won't touch her! I'll hurt it! She looks pretty bad! <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, let's just pretend like that didn't happen and go on with the rest of this episode. Uh, I don't know which one's more disturbing. I, I gotta say this. Either you doing the woman voice... Or you me as Buffalo Bill. Yeah, you as Buffalo Bill. I'm not sure which. <laughs> Since you're over there All in right. the Chicago area for real. Yes. In the uh, tri-state area. <laughs> yes. Anyway, moving on. Yes. Uh, I'm not butchering women for their fat, uh, lacy carcasses like uh, Buffalo Bill did. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> you had to so explain that. On the, so I don't know. You have to explain it on the show. I'm not so <laughs> sure. I'm not, no. Don't have any death head moths in my house. Get me the fly swatter, honey. No. <laughs> Listening regularly? Join the Practical Guitars Facebook group. And as always, you can review us on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or whatever service you found our podcast through. Oh, Reach no. out to us directly on the Practical Guitars Podcast at gmail.com. And as long as we're broadcasting, we're going to stay off the FBI's most wanted list. Yes, we are. Until we go off the air. So, um,. This week, I asked David a question. I said, should I get XYZ compressor? And David said, why do you need an effing compressor? Yeah, you got a tube amp? What the fuck do you need that for? I got a tube amp, uh, plenty of gain, and humbuckers. What the fuck do you need compression for? That was the question. All right. Now, here's the thing. So, I answered Jim in a probably a less than diplomatic way. Oh, because, certainly. yes, compression has a place. In certain kinds of music, over-compressed guitar is king. Country music, for example. Yes. Anything where you're doing finger-picking, because finger-picking, um, by its very nature, is very dynamic. You want to squash those dynamics so you can hear every note individually. Right. And evenly. Now, here's what compression doesn't do. Compression does not do any sort of EQ to your signal. It's not supposed to, anyway. Compress A good compressor is supposed to be quote-unquote, transparent. And it's not necessarily transparent because you can still hear the changes in dynamics, but you're not getting changes in frequency levels unless you're clipping them and you're clipping some of that signal and you're getting more highs and stuff. But that's, for the most part, you're not going to see that. Um, the reason why I told Jim that was because compressor circuits for guitar, a lot of guys like to use them so they can go into a really stiff amp that's running open so that it's not really doing a lot of tube compression. Uh, and I know Jim is running his stuff at the edge of breakup, which That's means true. he's getting a fair bit of compression Absolutely. to start with. So is it really even necessary? Yeah, see, that's where I was. Um, I'm kind of agreeing with you there because I'm right at the edge of where it's going into, like you said, where it's going to break up. And so I'm not fuzzy and I'm not in that realm of distortion, but I'm right on that edge. Because now, if I play a minor third, I don't want it to to sound terrible and then that just in that distortion and fuzzy place yeah. you know yeah no the problem with comp 
the problem with compression compression in general is that you raise the noise floor. So what a compressor actually does, for those of us that are not inclined, never used one, don't know really how they operate, they what they do is they attenuate the signal once it gets past a certain point. They use a ratio to do that. So usually you'll see numbers like one, two, two to one, or is this two to one, or two to one, three to one, four to one. What that means is it's going to make it for it's going to make it quieter by that ratio. So think of it as a, a like an inverted fraction. That's the way I think of it. So like you see two to one, you're actually going to cut the signal uh, in half for every time that it exceeds the threshold, right? And I think right. that's the right way to describe it. I'm not good with math, but yeah, basically you're. As you go up the compression dial, the ratio dial, you're compressing the signal more. Now, what happens is you're bringing that noise floor up because you're lowering the volume of of the loud signal, so you're attenuating those. And the problem is, in order to get unity gain, you have to crank the volume on the pedal in order to achieve that. So you're bringing that noise floor, that static hiss that lies underneath all signal audio signals, up into closer proximity to what you would normally consider audible frequencies. So because of that, you're getting more noise in your signal. Where is this bad, Jim? Can you can you guess? Yeah. The when you are playing with gain. And you're That's right, any sort of gain. Because now you've all you've done is add noise, buzz, hum, whatever you want to call it, to your signal, and it's gonna sound like poop. Right. In my opinion, the best way to use compression is to use it subtly. And here's why. So if I want to keep that noise floor at bay, but I still want to attenuate some of the higher parts of my signal so you can at least hear me when I'm being a little bit quieter, then I, I want to bring it up, but I don't want to bring I don't want to squash it too much because I'm going to have that noise floor coming up. So when playing with gain, I I mean you shouldn't even need compression to be honest with you. If you're using amp gain, you're you're by the point you're you're getting like a decent amount of gain going. Your signal should be pretty damn compressed. Uh, with tube amps. So this is where I've always used it with like clean tube amps, especially blackface fenders, if their volume is set real low, because you don't get any compression until you're at you know what I'm trying to think of hands of a clock. Um, you don't really get any comp- compression until you're about three on the the uh, dial there. I'm trying to pull up a clock so I can at least at nine nine o'clock. Nine you're gonna start to see compression kick in at clock. So then again. Depending on the amp, depending on the tubes you have in it, you might not get enough compression to do what you're doing until 10 or 11 o'clock on that volume knob. Right. In which case, that's why you want to look at potentially bringing a compressor. If you're running a Fender Twin and you're running it at like 7 o'clock on the volume knob because obviously it's loud as hell, then a compressor would be a good option for you because it's going to give you some of that tube feel back. The, the idea of like you know, hitting volume harder and then not picking up as much. But see, here's my thing, Jim. I, I would be perfectly at home with a, with a guitar amp that does not compress at all because my the way I play is very dynamic. I need to be able to get different tonalities from, from hard and soft picking. And I pick pretty hard most of the time, but I need that variation because I'll be doing a run and I'll actually vary my picking in that run. And it's, it's hard to describe, but if you go watch uh, – Paul Gilbert does it a lot – where he talks about amp dynamics, or not amp dynamics, but picking dynamics. And he says, like, playing a phrase fast is not good enough because even if you can play a phrase fast, can you play it quietly or can you play it loudly? And those two things are very important, and you have to be able to get all the shades in between as well. So his whole thing is like, yeah, okay, so you can play the phrase, but can you play it correctly? Right. And that's 
we don't think about that as guitar players because a lot of times when we get to those like super high gained out parts, like what you would typically associate with Paul Gilbert's playing, you're not thinking like in terms of the tonality of what you're doing based on the volume dynamics. Right. So what he does, like when he brings in that palm mute and he's picking quietly, you can hear each individual note in a very, very um, rhythmically satisfying way. Whereas uh, if you were to just like muddle through it, it's a whole nother animal. Um, so compression, it's it's a wild beast. I think there are some good compressors out there now. I think they're starting to bring out the right controls, like having a blend knob so you can put some of your original signal back in so you can get a little bit of your dynamic going, yep. but still bringing up that, that stuff that gets squashed, which is nice. <clears throat> well, um, so let's talk about a few things that give you compression naturally. Right. That, that get rid of the need okay. for a compressor. And one of them is humbuckers. Oh, so, yeah, to an extent, yeah. To an extent. Because they're louder. Right. They're louder. Um, so anything that increases your signal going into your first, to, to V1 position tube, your first position tube, is going to provide you with more compression. So uh, would you so say... Active pickup, humbuckers, yep. an acoustically loud guitar, right. um, so right, heavier right strings. Um, a heavy hitter. If you're a heavy hitter, right. then you're automatically compressing. So let's let's move out of the guitar. Do you use a wireless? Uh, that that's another good thing. So yep. wireless systems often have uh, they have a dual circuit. They have an expressor companion built into the equipment. Specifically, older wireless circuits, uh, because of the way that they had to operate within the radio frequencies, it was it was more efficient for them to squash and then expand the stuff as it comes into the, the other end so that that way it would uh, be less prone to interference. But a lot of guys actually really got into those sounds. Uh, who is it? Solo Dallas was a guy that makes the, uh, I forget what the name of the original wireless unit, but there was a famous wireless unit that all the big guys were using in the eighties because it was the only one at the time. And so Eddie Van Halen had it. And he used it in the studio, which is insane. And the other guy that had it was Angus Young. Yep. And, well, Angus and Malcolm both used it in the studio. So and the whole thing was because it did something special to their signal. So it wasn't just being wireless. It also had this express, this very musical compander, uh, compander compressor piece that was part of it. So, yes, there are other ways to get compression. I'm trying to think of another one. So we talked about pickups. We talked about wireless. Uh, even your pedals can compress, right. and that—that's another thing. Um, that's where going to go. Like to, so. if you have, a, if you have um, a buffer yep. in your circuit, you can use that to push the volume into the amp harder, so it hits up first V1 tube. I mean, technically, a lot of these ways are really just messing with the fact that you're pushing more volume into V1. Um, so, so overdrive. If you're paying with yeah. a lot of gain, the more gain you push the more you're compressing your signal. Now, here's where things get fun, right? So a lot of people like to use overdrive and distortion pedals and fuzz pedals into sort of driven amps, right? Yep. So what you're doing is you're stacking compression. Now, in studio environments, that's not desirable. But like many things, guitar players don't give a shit about <laughs> what's sane and rational, so we do whatever the hell we want. Right. But if you were to go into a studio and you were to compress a track when you recorded it, and then you were to try and stack a compressor on top of it, you could run into some really weird, like artifact type stuff where um, 
certain parts will be more compressed than others, and it'll be audible. Like you'll be able to hear it on the track, and it won't sound bad, but it won't sound right. It's it's just one of those things where like you listen to it, and you go, something's off about this. It doesn't really. It's like it's too loud when he says this and too quiet. And in a mix, it may not matter as much uh, because it, some of that stuff gets covered up. But for the, for the most part, like most engineers I I talk to, they don't want to they don't want to double up on compression. They'd rather have an uncompressed signal go right to the go right to the DAW. And then after it hits the DAW, then they'll compress. Another good example of compression, tape. Yeah. A lot of guys in the early days were relying on tape machines to provide their delay sounds. And then what they would do is they would actually goose the volume on the tape machine to push more volume into the to the uh, uh, the to their outboard rig after that, the amp and whatnot. But the other thing that does is if you push more volume into the tape, it causes the tape to saturate. And that tape saturation is compressed. So really what you're doing is you're getting a compressed delay in addition to hitting that V1 tube harder. So that could be a really interesting thing as well. Who was, um, it, who was it that used tape? Um, was it Ingway? Somebody uses... Uh, uh, Richie Black. Blackmore. That's it. Richie Black. Yep. yep. He had a very... It was a very rare Akai tape machine that he had his techs actually take the uh, heads out of so he could just use it as a preamp. Um, and I have looked at actually getting one of these bad boys. I'm waiting for somebody to just build one because, uh, you know, somebody's going to do it at some point. Like if, if Solo Dallas built that crazy ass wireless system into a pedal, you know, somebody's going to build that oh, freaking yeah. tape. Unit Richie Blackmore used. Um, so the EP booster does a pretty good approximation of it, too, because the EP booster is actually the preamp from an Echoplex miniaturized and done with different components. Uh, in a in a small housing with some extra options on it, because so many people were using that preamp. I mean, literally, Eddie Van Halen, ACDC, uh, Led Zeppelin, um, Eric Johnson uses it. He still uses it. In fact, he's doing the exact same thing on stage right now. His tech, I watched his rig run down the other day. His tech, he's got an EP, an, an old Echoplex, right? Yep. And it's broke. And they, they admitted it doesn't work very well, and they've had problems with it. So what they did was they actually took the preamp out of it. So they so they added jacks so he right. could run it into a into a memory band. And he actually uses the memory band for the delay sound, but he uses the EP booster for the boost and actually massages signal before it hits the the memory band. That's and he crazy. seemed pretty happy with it. Yeah. So again, uh, I'm a big tape guy, so you know my thing would probably be doing something like that, but. Um, yeah, I, I can't afford a tape machine, and I don't want the maintenance on stage. Like, could you imagine gigging with an Echoplex? It's no. a 60-year-old piece of equipment in some cases, because I want the tube one, right? It would be a 60-year-old piece of equipment with shitty tape heads, yep. with tapes that are almost unobtainium at this point. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, literally, guys are buying 8-tracks, ripping the 8-tracks open, and, re and rewinding the cartridges so that you can use uh, those Echoplexes still. Yep. There are some new production uh, units, uh, but they're very expensive. I mean, you can get one from Mike Fuller. Like it's basically, uh, he's got both a tube and a solid state Echoplex, and I think they're a thousand and two thousand dollars respectively. Yeah. Um, actually, the, the the tube one is more expensive, but he also has uh, somebody else's. Oh, uh, T Rex came out with their analog replica delay, which is, I think it's called the analog replica. But that is the tape delay. Right. Um, and it's pretty cool. Actually, I thought about buying one, but they're $800, so it's kind of out of oh, my budget crap. right now. Yeah, um, it's a little bit. Out, yeah, especially and again, it's time. not something you'd use on stage nowadays right. because it's not reliable. No, no. Now, I saw a band, I saw a cover band just recently. Uh, they were a Led Zeppelin cover band, and they had um, 
they had four echoplexes on stage. And wow. I'm sitting there going, dude, you've got like $4,000 in old tape delays <laughs> that are totally unreasonable and unreliable. And you know why he has four of them? Because why? he only uses one. He has four of them because the other because, three don't yeah, fucking might, work half the yeah, time. <laughs> might break. Yeah. Um, the musical box. It's a Genesis. It's a Genesis cover band. They have in some of their music. They have a very specific way that they use that slider on the echoplex, and almost none of the um, the modern like reproduction kind of uh, emulator pedals have this slider interface on them. So they have to use either an echoplex or the Dan Electro equivalent because it has a slider. So what they do is they like when the echoplex isn't working, they break out the Dan Electro and stick it on stage. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, legit. Like I can, I can believe that. I can totally believe that. So the other kind of we we didn't talk about this. So since we're talking about compression, and different ways to achieve it, um, stacking pedals. So you're talking about stacking overdrives and stuff. But what we what we don't really think about is every pedal is a gain stage. Okay. Yeah. So even an MXR is ninety. Which is, this is why this classic pedal is on so many boards for people who are doing the Van Halen stuff. There's something magic about this pedal, and it's not rocket science. It has a very special gain stage in the front end of that pedal. And when you hit it hard enough, it compresses the signal in a very pleasing way. And it's almost like a multiband compression because it lets certain things get through and, and then compresses others. And so when you run your guitar signal straight into the, the MXR Phase 90 and the output into a Marshall stack... That magic happens. And actually, it's not even just a Marshall stack. It's really any gain-down amplifier because it has – it's like a filter. And it combs out – not just in the way that a phaser is like a filter. It combs out a specific – I mean, if you could turn the phasing off in the unit, you'd still notice something because it, it does color the signal of the guitar as, before it comes out of the, the pedal. And that's right. – there's so many guys uh, – so – you see all these guys going to the rigs of the stars type stuff, and somebody's building them a pedal board. They're not talking about why they selected the pedals they did. But in a lot of cases, I'm convinced it's over gain staging. Because I've had some of the pedals on those boards, and they did not sound good unless I was running them in the exact same order. So you're talking about, in the run-up to this episode, we were talking about this topic and why certain people would use certain pedals in certain orders. That's a critical component of it. And it's not just compression. But it's this idea that like saturating a specific part of your pedal board in a specific way and how pedals interact with different impedances and stuff can make things work better. Yeah. So I'm doing that. I'm I'm reconfiguring my board right now because of the changes that I've made. Um, that's that's one of the things well, I've gotta, you, you I've got to sit, play it, see what I like, change them out, play it, see if I like it that way. I want it in the, do I want it in the front end? Do I want, like, I'm thinking, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to put the reverb maybe, maybe in the loop. I'm thinking, okay, well, I can drive the reverb right into the front end of the, of the amp. Because I'm not breaking up the amp. I've already broken up the signal before I get so you're So you're really using your amp as a, as a clean pedal platform? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Now, let me tell you why I wouldn't put it out front. So if you're running your amp on the edge of breakup, like right before it starts to break up, yep. you're already getting tube compression going on. And when you do that, you're going to compress your repeats, which means you're going to be easily heard, but you're going to have kind of a filtering effect caused by the, the preamp. Whereas I would rather have I would rather have it echoing the preamp post-compression 
gotcha. in the preamp. The only time that that's really going to be an issue, and, and anybody can chime in on this, but the only time that would be an issue is if you have your volume on your preamp running so loud that you're that you're starting to get compression from the power tubes right. and them being saturated, then you're going to have some distortion on your echo as well. Because just because you put in the loop, you still got two tubes or four tubes in your amp or six tubes, depending on what your amp is, yep. that are still um, still in the chain and still working and still will provide some compression. Um, never underestimate your tube types for that too. I mean, your six L sixes, six V sixes, EL thirty fours, EL eighty fours, and other various output tubes all have different characteristics in terms of how they break up and how they saturate and compress. And some of them compress real early, even though they're not breaking up. And yeah. that can be a big issue. Um, it's, some of that's a circuit too, because I, I know fenders do that, where their power tubes start compressing long before. They would if they were in your, let's like say your typical Marshall design. So it's, it, it has something to do with negative feedback, I think, but I'm not super well versed on that. So I'm not going to get like really geeky on it, but I just know it can happen. I've seen amps where, you know, guys are running something in the loop and then the loop is like super compressed. And I'm like, what's going on here? Like, do you have a compressor in your loop? And it turns out that it's just the, the way that the tubes are saturating that amp. I actually, the one I've noticed it most with uh, is the uh, super line. Hmm. <clears throat> they yeah. have they have some funky compression. I don't think they have loops though, but I noticed that they have like some funky power tube compression. It gets the, the, it seems like the power tubes are compressing a lot earlier in those amps. So yeah, I can, so I can, could just be a trick of my ears. But again, that's why I said I'm going to try them in different ways because <clears throat> typically I put any delay in the loop, any effects loop. Yeah. Now, so obviously in your typical effects categories you have time-based effects yep. and you have um distortion effects and volume effects and you know if it's time-based generally i are on the side of caution i put it in the loop however i have heard some great analog delay sounds going in front going in front of a saturated amp and um pete thorne does a video on that it shows i think it's carbon copy bright into like a marshall plexi or something yeah cranked up loud and he's using it and you got to remember, certain guys did that. Uh, Eddie Van Halen was a perfect example. If you want those 70s rock tones, they were running echoplexes right out in front of their marshals. There was say, nothing going on in a mixer right. or anything like that. Right. And they didn't, I, I mean, a lot of those it, amps I, didn't have um, effects loops. And the ones, even the ones that did, people weren't really making use yeah, of them. Yeah, the effects loops were shit in a lot. Yep. Well, yeah, the effects loops were shit on a lot of them. And some oh, yeah. people didn't touch them. Yeah, they were talking. I mean, we're, we're spoiled rotten now. We are. 50% of the time, an amp you plug into is going to have an effects loop, yep. right? And 50% of the time, that effects loop is going to be really good. That's kind of my estimation. Yep. Um, I have seen other effects loops that sound like absolute trash. Um, I won't name names, but they're out there. Um, actually, I won't name names because I can't really remember what amps they were specifically, <laughs> but I know I've had a couple where... The, the effects loop was trash. Yeah, the um, and then like was, my bases. Yeah, go ahead. My bases like totally spoiled me because it's two based effects loop. Yep. That's why they have seven tubes in a Mark Five Twenty Five. It's ridiculous. Twenty five watt head with seven tubes, seven preamp tubes. Yeah, it's got nine tubes in it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'd like the Lone Star so, two buffered reverb. Yeah, two buffered reverb, two buffered effects loop. Yep. Can't complain. <laughs> no. You know that's why I said you would really like the. Um, uh, Lone Star because of that. Where um, um, I'm looking at a, a rectiverb right now. 
Yeah, that's what I want. That's my that's my goal. That's probably what I'm going to wind up with uh, as a rectum. To kind of make things. I think I would get more use. Yeah, I think I would. I think yeah, my phone's going off. Sorry. I think I would probably use a rack verb and get more use out of it than I would the Lone Star. Yep. For what it's worth. Yeah. Maybe in ten years, a Lone Star might be the end for me. But right now, with what I'm doing, I'm probably going to get more use out of a rack verb. And as I told you earlier, my thing is, I get a rack verb, I'm going right for that Mesa five band EQ. That's another thing you, we should probably talk about. You were talking about EQ pedals, too. Yeah, so I was um, thinking, okay, so <clears throat> what if... Um, so, uh, again, uh, the other thing that will affect compression before we get off of that is where your volume is. Because if you're... Sure. A, a lot of people think that, and, and it is a misconception, that as you turn up your amp, you're going to get louder. There is a point where the amp stops, and it's relatively low, especially yeah. in a tube amp. A yeah, it's called amp, saturation. Right. A tube amp saturates. It reaches that highest level of volume at a relatively low point. Some as low as, you know, four or five. Some a little higher. Right. Six or so. But usually once you're past halfway, <clears throat> you are looking at um, where you're already saturating just by turning the amp up, the master volume. Yeah, specifically on clean channels and amps, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I find that depending on the amp, like even the dirty channels could get, they could get saturated fairly quickly depending, but see the reason they do that is because most people, so like in the old days before we had multi-channel amps and we had cascading gain stages, thank you Boogie, um, when dinosaurs what we used to do was, along the was take a fucking, we take one amp and we crank that shit way right. the fuck up to get it to distort. Or we, or if you're even going to go back further, we'll stab our speakers with knives yeah. to make them distort. I don't know if that was a wives' tale. Heard that story many times where no. there was a pencil driven through the speaker. I don't know how. Yeah, I forget what band that, that goes around with, but I, I don't think that. I it mean, was, it was I've early seen speakers like, with holes in them, right? And they don't sound distorted like that. No. So, anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, so you're talking about level, talking about, um, distortion and like natural occurrence in, in tubes and stuff. Listen, I mean, you're going to compress long before you hit the point where your amp's going to break up. You're going to compress right from the beginning. So you just got to be, you, you just got to be mindful of it. Now, as far as things like, uh, EQ is concerned and stuff like that. EQ plays a big part in it, but it's just different. So, um, yeah, so, so where, is, um, where is it that the EQ, because I really don't want to, I know this sounds funny, because I really don't want to color the sound of my pickups that much. I, I, po I pick certain right. guitars because I like the pickups that are in them. I don't want to go, oh, you know what? So now I sound like this. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, yeah. So. Um, and that really, that's a, that's a whole thing. So think about it this way. When you go to your amp, depending on your tone control out, there's really only two types of tone controls, right? There's preamp tone controls, meaning, to, and, and Mesa makes it very, very clear in their, in their uh, sales discussions. I, I've been to a couple of their things where they, 
show up with a bunch of amps and show off and show how each thing works. And basically, the boogie line, so the original Mark series, runs with what they call a preamp tone circuit and a five-band EQ post, right? So what this means is I have on my amp tone controls that control the amount of level hitting the tubes of a specific frequency range. If my tone controls, and the quickest way to find out if an amp is set up this way, if my tone controls are at zero, ain't shit coming out of that amp because no volume of any type is being hit is being let to go to that first tube. Now your post amp tone controls, which I may be wrong on this, but I think that's the way that the British the the British amp designers, the original amp designers from from like Marshall and people like that, use the post tone controls, which are uh, used to shape the sound after it's already driven. So after it's gone through the preamp, you have these tone controls that allow you to shape what's what's coming out of that section. So um, the reason this matters is because EQ, if you have an amp that has post-tone control, can give you the same power of being able to filter out certain frequencies going into the amp. Now, you say, I love the sound of my pickups, and that may be very, very well be true. But I'll bet you if you put an EQ out in front of it and you play around, you'll find out that maybe there's a little bit too much bass coming through this way. And if I dial it down just a little bit, it doesn't really change the sound. But what it does is it changes how those pickups react with the amp, and it'll get you more clarity or right. it will get you more chunk, depending on what you do. And and I can give you – I mean there are certain frequency ranges that work for this. If you want to cut – it's like if, you're, if your uh, amp is – well, that's post. If you're, if you're plugging into an amp, and you're having problems with uh, like clarity, especially on the low strings. Dial out everything below 100 hertz, and watch and see how much clarity you get back. And if 100 hertz doesn't work, you want to try to go up a little bit more. You go to 100, 250 in those in those ranges. Now, of course, we're talking about a graphic EQ, which is what's common for guitar players to use on their pedal board. You're going to have labeled EQ settings for each number, and as you go through them, you can see, oh, this is 100 hertz, or this is 150 hertz. And then this is three or four, usually it's like 150 and then like 400. So what you want to do is you want to cut that 150 and maybe dial back a little bit of the 400. But you want to be careful because 400 hertz, for example, is the fundamental range for the guitar. So if you want to be able to hear a note definition, you still got to have frequencies at 400 because that's the, the defining note. Everything above that is actually some, some order of a harmonic. And so they're not as important to the clarity of being able to punch through a mix. Um, so... That's that's one way to use the EQs out in front of the amp, especially in an amp that doesn't already have the, that that uh, pre-tone circuit, right? right? So when you have the post-tone, so when you have, let's say you have the pre-tone circuit, so you've already got the ability to do that. It, normally, and what I found was a lot of the amps in the pre-tone circuit, you'll find that you're dialing the bass way the way the hell down because you just don't need it. It's it's it, it it becomes muddy very early, usually in the knob. Now on the um, on the other side of that is if you're going to put the EQ in the loop, this is where things get really interesting because you can use that to tune your amp for the room, number one. Number two is you can make your amp do things that you didn't think it could because you can play with the voicing of the amp before it hits the speaker. So that's why the Mesa 5-band EQ is such a cool design because they tuned that thing for specific guitar frequencies. They were very smart about it. And I think, I think Randall... Um, Smith, who designed it, was was sitting there going, which frequencies are most useful to guitar players? And you could see they're broken up differently. Instead of, remember we talked about 125 or 150 hertz being really typical, 
Um, on, on their EQ, their first slider is 80 hertz. So it allows you to cut away all that crap below 100 hertz. And what it does is it allows you to have a smoother transition to the to the material above 100 hertz. Most guys on their bases don't use it that way. They actually boost the lows. But I could see situations like if you have a really boomy amp where you might want to pull that down. Now, it would be nice. I don't remember what their, their second um, frequency range is, but what would be nice is there are only really a certain few frequency ranges I, adju- I adjust on an amp, but if you could somehow select those frequency ranges. So you could say, and that's, w- that's what a parametric EQ allows you to do. Right. So if somebody could come up with a parametric EQ for guitar players that has like two or three different cues on it, so you could select different you know filter ranges for like, it would be much more powerful than a graphic EQ. Right. Because you could sit there and you could say, I want to drop everything below 100 hertz. I want to shove that. And then I want to I want to boost at 400 with a very mild cue just so I get like a little bit and, and a very little amount of boost just to get a little bit more note definition. And then I want to boost at 2,500 hertz or 5,000 hertz to give myself some presence. Or maybe I want to shelve that, you know. And, and right. so it gives you a more flexible tool where you can be very specific about your frequency. Now, when I... When I'm playing, one of the things that I've been thinking about is when you when you go to use a an EQ, I think, okay, do I want to like you you were talking about rolling off those really low lows? Let, leave that to the bass player. Let them do that. But what about those really high highs? And I was so I grew up in the '70s when we had a kind of a mountain on our EQ. You know, your your EQ went right. You were your yeah, lows, the opposite of the smile curve, right? Where the smile curve sounds fine if you're alone. It sounds terrible in a mix. It sounds god awful in a in a um for the most part in a in a band mix because all your mids are gone. And a guitar is a mid well voiced instrument. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, and no. So there are two ways to accomplish that. Um, I don't scoop my mids super deep. But I tend to use really mid-heavy, mid-heavy equipment anyway. Like my, the Mark series has, I mean, it's just an absurd amount of mids. Right. It's like playing playing uh, through a foghorn or something. Like it, it really is honky. Right. Um, so what I, so what I tend to do with my curve, instead of a smile curve, um, I boost the lows you know, liberally. I leave the 400 hertz spectrum alone because I want to get that note definition clarity, but I don't want my, if you, if you boost that too much, you're going to get boxy and I don't want to do that either. Right. So then I take the middle slider and I pull it back just a bit. It's probably no more than three dB. Right. So I get that bigness, right? Right. But I don't lose the mids. They're still in the signal. But you're- and then, then the next slider I actually boost and I cut the treble, which is odd. People are like, why don't you, why don't you boost the treble? Because I don't like my guitar sounding like a nest of angry fucking bees. <laughs> right, right, right. <clears throat> Matter of fact, I could see me really taking off the highest end of treble. It's just exactly. because of the, the way my pick attack is. And um, yeah. So, uh, you were talking about you were talking about that that curve. I know that you like to play an SG, but you also like to play your um, G and L. Yeah, that's got to so be a my very SG, different. I it's not really though, Jim. You know, the only difference is I tend to boost the, um, and I want to say it's around twenty five hundred hertz, but I, I mean, I'll, I'll post it in the show notes what the actual EQ sliders are. But I, I tend to boost the fourth slider 
more with single coils than I do the SG, and I cut treble with the single coils, whereas when I'm playing my SG, I boost treble. And I don't boost it a lot, but it's enough to compensate. But I'm basically trying to achieve the same sounds with both guitars. That's basically what I'm doing. Yeah. So what you should do is just bring two of the same guitar. Yeah, which is why I have two S500s now. <laughs> and then just leave the SG at home. Well, part of the so the SG is the sound of the band I'm in right now. Like if I'm recording, I'm getting the SG out. Right. Um, the S500 is my sound. Like that's what I sound like, and that's what I'm going to use for pretty much the rest of my life, probably until I find something better. But um, like a Paul Reisman. The, the whole thing is like, yeah. Well, you know, the cool thing is the JP2C Plus, which has the five the five bands. Huh. It has a pair of five. Um, it it has a pair of five bands on it. Um, and I'll get back to you in a minute, by the way. And so they're, they're foot switchable and assignable to each channel. So you can actually have like, let's say you just set up one channel for one guitar, one for the other, cause the channels are identical. Yeah. So you can just, you can just flip a switch when you switch guitars or hit the foot switch and you're ready to rock and roll. And it doesn't really matter cause it's set up. So bo- the beauty um, of the Lone Star is that you have, um, you know, you're talking about your amp and all the controls you have. Your your two um, uh, preamp sides are completely independent. So your clean channel right. and your dirty channel, it's not like, oh, I've got my EQ set, and it's the same for clean and dirty. No. You literally have a clean preamp and a dirty preamp, and those things are totally independent, right. which is, number one, why it's, I mean, people are like, well, you know, even a, a 30 watt is is uh, two grand. You're almost, almost two grand. Yeah, but it's worth it. It, it's totally All right, so here's the here's the thing. Uh, I'm going to talk since you brought up the price tag. I'm going to talk about for a minute what you get from an amplifier as you go up the price tag brackets. Right, right. When you start out and you're looking at an amp, if you're a professional, no, you're not going to be a professional. You're 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 an amateur, right? So you're not looking to spend a lot of money on an amp. That's why amps exist that are very inexpensive. Right. Uh, I'm going to ignore modelers. We're just going to talk about tube amps. All right. So now make sure you, amps, you identify not solid sta- head. And yeah, not and solid combo. state, not modelers. Right. Head and combo. So co- you'll find in the lower end of the market, combos are way more popular because uh, it's it's a way to keep costs down. You don't have to buy an extra cab to go with it. And there are some. I, I have always believed that if you're going to buy the head and cab, it should be the same price as the combo. But there are there's a little extra material involved, um, so I get kind of the price difference thing. I just don't agree with the amount of price difference. But the thing is, so like when you start out and you're buying these inexpensive combos, a lot of times they're made to fit a wider variety of uses, um, and so they don't necessarily do those tricks well, right? So like take for example, uh, the Hot Rod Deluxe Killer Clean Channel. It is it is one of the best entry level amps. The granted, a lot of people would say four. What are they up to now? They're probably like five fifty now. Yeah. Five hundred and fifty dollars for 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 you know for a starter amp or six hundred dollars or whatever it is. Listen, that's the low end of amplification. If you're going to buy a tube amp, which means it has to have tube sockets and actual tubes and transformers that are big enough to handle it, it costs a lot of money to put together. I know right. people t- say, oh well, I could build one for cheaper than that, but Listen, I, I just quality control, big factor here. Yep. And number two is 
They know what they're doing. Okay, right. so yes, Fender is making it killing selling those amps at six hundred dollars. The well, fact, fact is, they're probably three hundred and seventy bucks to produce. Right. I mean, they they're making their thirty percent margin and then some. But you got blues in order for for as well. Blues Juniors is a good, yeah, good one yeah. In that oh, that's price another range. good start. Another good starter. Right, right. Well, the reason I bring up the, the Hot Red Deluxe is because what what we're seeing here is a lot of single channel amps yep. that have like features that make them reminiscent of dual channel amps, like boosts and stuff like that. Um, obviously, there are your dual channel options available. The Marshall DSL series is a good example, yep. which has just been redesigned. Great, great amps. Oh, yeah. uh, Marshall Origins. Uh, the origin, if you're yep. into the 1970s sounds, I just played one the other day. They're incredible. Yep. But the point is, yes, there are feature-rich options available, but those amps are more jack-of-all-trades type because they're trying to fit players that don't necessarily know where they're at in the world. And you start getting into the the thousand dollar plus club, and you're going to see things like Rivera's, Doctor Z's, um, Two Meisters, Mesa's, I mean, uh, and those are those Peter are Kettner. those are more purpose built machines. Right. Okay, so like nobody's th- nobody's telling you to go buy a dual rectifier to play jazz, right. but you'd be fine to go buy a a Hot Rod Deluxe and play jazz on it, and play hard rock on it, and play you know. It's a very versatile machine because it's built that way, but it doesn't do all of those things well without modification. So when you get into like the thousand dollar club and you earn you know thousand to two thousand dollar bracket, you're starting to see some some um, I, I don't want to say gentrification, but that's specialization. Okay, yes. so dual rectifier, for example, it's not necessarily known for being a versatile amplifier, but it is, and I'll give you some examples. Lindsey Buckingham, he uses right. dual rectifiers or triple rectifiers. And the whole thing is, like, it does have a good clean sound. It's just not known for that. And some of the other amps that Mesa puts out of that way, too. Dr. Z, for example, they're known for putting out those, like, single-ended Class A 15 to 30-watt monsters yep. that are just crank them up and go to town. But they also make the Maz. And the right. Maz 18 and the Maz 38 is kind of their bread and butter. And those are clean machines. Yep. Like they will get dirty when you turn them up, but they're made for having a little bit of headroom so you can still do the clean stuff on them. And they're made to be a little bit more versatile too. But everybody knows Dr. Z is really more famous for the overdriven tones. And so those amps excel at that. Right. You get into like, like Fusion Kettner, the switching arrangements and all that kind of stuff. Like that's what their, their like huge forte is to provide professional level equipment. Once right. you get into that thousand dollar price packet, you're getting into that professional level of equipment where you have all the switching options and you have features like five band EQs that are built into the amp or yep. maybe an effects loop or a slave output or an emulated output or, and you're starting to see this stuff on cheap ramps now. But like I said, it's not purpose built. Once you get a bass that 2000 mark, you're right into the stratosphere of purpose builtness. Like things right. that are, I mean, shit, you can buy a $3,000 amp. That's got one channel. And it yes. just slays at what it does, but it isn't giving you shit for clean, and it, it doesn't do any of that stuff. Right, Perfect or it gives you a train wreck. Right, right, or it gives you incredible cleans and doesn't do breakups well. Yeah, and so right, so right. Ken Fisher, Ken Fisher's company, because Ken Fisher's now now gone. He's been gone for a long time. Right. Uh, it has now been passed on to another guy who's making train wreck amps. Now, my understanding is they go for about four or five thousand dollars. Yep. Um, and they're, they're custom designed. There's a six month wait limit. Like it, it's a whole thing, but people are buying them and train wrecks are not known for being clean machines. They're known for being gained out like super rock amps, um, to the point where people only run it, you know, 
the the gain is full on at like nine o'clock. Right. Okay. Um, and and that's the way people run them. And these are non-master volumes, so at nine o'clock, it's it's peeling the paint. Yeah. Um, it, it's just a, it's just a whole thing. Like we could talk about we, we could talk about price all day long, but as soon as you get to that level of your guitar playing, where you know, like this is kind of what I do, and this is how I get my gigs, and this is how I you know perform every night. So this is what I want to do. Like this is the amplifier I need to buy. It becomes very obvious and very focused on what you should be doing at that point. Yeah. I know I've talked a lot this episode, Jim, so you have the floor for a while now. No, I mean, we've only got 16 minutes left. You've talked for 44. Now, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. No, but seriously, um, it, it, no, it's all good information. And the, and, um, the, uh, I'm an amp whore. I can't, I can't lie. I love amps. Right. I mean, even though I have my Helix, like I look at amps all the time, and I'm like, mm. so I was looking at a um, looking at a Stratocaster, and this will come back to the amp thing. Looking at a Stratocaster today, they had a um, scratch and dent Squire. It was a higher end Squire, but a Squire um, that had fallen, so it had a crack in the. Nothing was wrong with any of the electronics or the or the wood or anything. You know how the the new finishes are just terrible. They just it looked like somebody literally melted the finish, <laughs> and right, uh, right. So because it, it did a certain way. Anyway, then it marked down to incredible price. It might come home anyway. Um, they uh, uh, they are incredible. Uh, the, they're the Legos of guitars, right? Strats. Oh yeah, right, right. Legos of guitars. You can, take things out, put things in, so on and so forth. And what I'm, what I'm getting at here is guitars are easier to buy at a low price and mod the crap out of and turn them into something. An amplifier is not. You can change tubes. You can change transformers, but you may as well buy an amp at this point. You know, you can put new wire in. Uh, you, you see what I mean? Yeah. People don't people don't think Jim about those costs either. Like even just to rep- so my I got a Mesa Mark Five twenty five right. Yep. It's a fifteen hundred dollar amp. Yep. I it's a fifteen hundred dollar amp. Yep. Right. It's got tw- it's got seven twelve AX seven. Right. At and how two much ELAD a piece fours. for replacement? Now, yeah, like nine or thirteen dollars or twenty dollars depending on what you want to put in there. Each. And if you want to go new old stock, oh my god, forget it. Or go to Mesa themselves. They're like twenty seven to thirty dollars a piece. Right. No, no, they're they're. In fact, I have a Mesa two with a price tag on it. Hang on. Uh, and my point is that they're you can go, eighteen bucks, eighteen bucks for 18. a premium tube from them. Okay, so twenty dollars for for a pre, for a premium tube from them. Each. So between ten and eighteen bucks. Yeah, yeah, each. Yeah, each. So at, you're talking about seventy dollars, <laughs> right? You're talking about seventy to one hundred and forty dollars just for the preamp tubes, and then you've got how many power tubes? Two or two or four. Two EL84s. Two. So they yeah. got two power tubes. Those are the more expensive ones, right? So. Right. You're yeah, out. They're, they're usually like 50 bucks or whatever. And you have to buy a match pair for that amp. So. And you, and, you um, do. and I would buy the Mesa branded power tubes. Right. And the thing about sure. um, um, folks that don't know, Mesa's, you don't have to. Uh, uh, what is it when you adjust your tubes? You don't have to bias. You don't have to bias. Bias. Right. You just stick them in. If you buy Mesa, if you if you buy Mesa branded tubes, right? That's that's and, that, what I and that's the, the problem, right? 
So you save. So, but but that being said, they don't run very well on other brand tubes anyway. So you might as well just buy the Mesa tubes and save yourself some money. Right. So um, other amps like uh, you know Fender, gonna buy. You'll probably buy JTs or whatever for tubes. Um, groove tubes, I meant. GT, groove tube. Yeah, groove GT. Yeah. I mean, I, fenders don't eat any tube you throw in them. Like, I, I've used all kinds of shit. Tongue yeah. soles and yep. whatever. Yep. But you will have to buy a so, fender. Right, right. So, the point the point is, though, like, the, the, those modification costs, even if you're buying a combo and you're changing the speaker out, yep. there's another hundred bucks. Like, yeah. so you can quickly get into this realm of like spending like five or 600 bucks on mods. If you're changing transformers or if you're doing stuff to the, um, the circuit path on the board, like I would not condone anybody who's an amateur do anything like that. But if you're going to, if you are competent, go for it. Um, but again, just playing around and tinkering in an amp like that, just buy what's purpose built for you. You'll save money so in the long run. You'll save money and you'll be happier because you have a warranty. Yep. So you just got a new what for your for your Mesa? You got a new. I got the matching recto cab, and I think I posted it in the group. Yes, uh, did. yeah, it's it's the uh, wicker front cab that matches my wicker front head. Now, um, what I was getting I with that is, um, if you were going to tell somebody, if you're going to somebody came up to you and said, "Hey, I need to get a you know a combo amp," or I mean, I, I want a new amp. Would you recommend a combo, or would you right. recommend a head and cabinet? Depends on what they're doing. I, it, it totally depends on what they're, they're leaving, doing. They're leaving the realm of their beginner amp, whether they had a Blues Junior or they had a Modeler, whatever. It, it's not, not that. It's, it's, it's musical style. That's, that's what makes that decision for me. Like, okay, so if you're playing hard rock music, then yes, get a, a head and cab set up. If you're playing uh, like country music, get an open back combo. Yep. If you're playing jazz, open back combo. If you're playing blues, open back combo. Or you have a choice. You can you can do both for blues. But I but I think it's really it's more about what you're expecting to get out of the amp tonally than necessarily like convenience. At least for at least for me. I, I mean, yes, I could obviously. I, I would love to have a combo. They don't make a Mark Five Twenty Five combo, or or I would have considered it. But realistically, I think the tones I'm getting better out of a head and cab, or I, I think they're the best I've ever had. Right. And um, I've had a couple of cabinet situations where I've had like a combo amp that I plug it into a cab or whatever. Never been happy with those. But the Mark Five and and the, and the Mesa cabs, like the Mesa cabs, are outstanding. Even my Pure S Sanzera, when I had that head. I, I, I may have mentioned on the show, I plugged into the um to the Marshall four by twelve that the that um they used to demo a lot of amps and I just it sounded flubby and it was it was kind of washed out. That was a silver jubilee cab, by the way. Right. And then they put me through the Mesa Vertical two twelve yep. with the with the slant. Oh my god. Like it was just it just night oh, day. It, just, it was unbelievable. It's like the choir of angels and the, the heavens opened up. And let me play some Ghost. No, yeah. th that that's terrible. No, I think you know. For me, um, it, it goes both ways. I agree with you that a, that a combo is nice. Honestly, for the versatility, um, a head and cab, you have a little bit more versatility in that. I want to change the speaker. Okay, tonight I'm just going to use this different cabinet. 
and then, you know, or I'm going to use this different cabinet. And that gives you that. Plus, if you're a, if you're a stereo kind of person, you could come out of that effects send, go into um, a power amp, come back out, come back into your amp. Now you can use that for a stereo system. You can, you can, um, you know, be on other side. So all good points, all good points, Jim. And you know, the, the, the thing you were talking about there, being able to switch cabinets with heads. Yep. So if every amp was offered in a head, I don't think there would be any reason to uh, not say go with a head because right. then you could get a, an open back cab. That's right. Or a closed back cab, depending on the type of music. And then change the speaker to what you need too. So Absolutely. And that's the thing. Then you can order that Harley Benton speaker from or cabinet. Oh. I'm just saying. Can we not talk about? Hey, they're having a. Whole I was watching. Harley I Benton. was watching Spectre SMG. I was watching Spectre SMG and his little. Let's shoot on a Mesa one by twelve with a Harley Benton one by twelve with the same speaker. They did not sound the same. No. He's on fucking crack uh, again. <laughs> you know, not even close. I swear to God. Here's the thing. I'm gonna get at. With these things, which is all right. So I was watching uh, one of the one of the other channels. I'm not gonna pick on anybody, and um, it seemed like all of a sudden the YouTube people like us that are on, um, we're not on YouTube, but we're on here. All of a sudden, like I was talking about before, they had that that bigger head, you know, the YouTube celebrity head, and I'm like, yeah, jeez. Ah, you know, you guys could actually talk a little bit about the gear. Then when they showed the gear, they were they were showing us gear. I'm like, you're still not using an amplifier. You're not showing me anything. You're not telling me anything. You're not right. giving me. I'm not gonna play your computer. I'm gonna I'm gonna um, use uh, our ability to use the f word on here. I gotta play a fucking computer on stage. I'm playing a. <laughs> fucking amplifier on stage, you know, and that's the thing. So don't tell me, yeah, you know what? Um, I've got this great sound from this thing, and he's the guy's like, Bleh! and you'll know who it is when I go, yeah. So yeah, I'm like, ah, oh, jeepers, really? I mean, you know what you're showing these guys? You're showing them nothing. And and you know what this guy had? He had an amplifier turned on. He had a Hughes and Kettner turned on in the background. Had no wires going into it. Why is it on? Why is it glowing blue? So you show off? Hey, show yeah. it off. There's my new Hughes and Kettner. It's glowing blue. See how it's glowing blue? See how I'm eating up the tubes and not putting any fucking load to them? <laughs> hey, Captain Douchebag. <laughs> you know? No, I, I was referring I was referring to uh, Glenn Fricker did a shootout of the, uh, the Harley oh, yeah, Benton. Yeah. Uh, I watched that. I, I, I don't went, know if you've seen it. And like, yeah, okay, fine. It's a how much do they passable good Yes. It's a passable speaker cabinet, but it it is not it pales in comparison to anything Mesa. And he has a a a running thing against Mesa Boogie. Mm -hmm. Like if you can go back and you can watch the other videos where he has slammed them because they won't endorse him. That that's what it is. Mesa yeah. doesn't endorse people from YouTube. They won't. Yeah. Because they're a small company, they've always operated that wa that way, and they're very staunch in their ways. No, Jim, I don't think it's ever going to happen. To be honest with you, yeah. I think the I think the biggest thing that ever happened to Mesa happened, and then and then it's over. And that was them going to the Guitar Center. Yeah, I I honestly think that they that they basically burned their bridges with like trying to make future relationships because 
based on my conversations with the reps and stuff that work there, there's like 12 guys there and they, and like eight, eight independent reps or something that, that represent the brand, uh, in, in different regions. And the guys that work at Mesa, most of them have been there almost the entire time the company's been around. And Randall Smith made it very clear. We have never run this company out of debt. This company right. has always been run out of when we have money in our pockets, we make new things. You know, and and I don't think he gives a fuck about about endorsements. I really don't. What, that's what I was going to say. So I think that when it comes to his his um, way of doing things, um, I don't think they're I don't think they're putting out thousands of of Lone Stars a month. Or well, look at look at no, they're not. They're certainly not. Probably no. in the thirties or forties, right? If that, if that. Now, when you look at so Mesa. They do have impressive user ro- rosters, right? Right. Uh, John Petrucci being like the big one right now. Yep. John Petrucci has been buying Mesa boogies for the entire time that he has been a professional guitar player. So right. going back into the late '80s. Yep. So if you actually, I think he started out the, the first album may have been tracked with a uh, with a Marshall, but um, going way back when, and they just now decided to do a signature amp. And my understanding is he had to pay for his. Oh, I'm sure he, he had actually to had to pay for it. You know what? It, it, we would have a different guitar community if these guys had to pay for their guitars. Look at look at for an example. Um, I saw one of these roadshow things. So they were talking about we're coming towards the end of their thing, but I wanted to mention this. Yeah, well, I saw one of these roadshow things where they were talking about um, a BB King guitar, and they were like, "Oh, this guy was played by BB King," and the roadshow guy was like, "Yeah, so what?" Because he got. Five guitars a month, some ridiculous number like yeah. that. Um, it might have been yeah. One, well, I mean, but he got he got like a so, guitar every month, and so he'd play it, and then he'd give it away or he'd sell it on the actual market. Yeah, it's like there's tons that were played by him, and they're all available everywhere, you know, all over the place. And uh, a lot of those like specialty instruments, especially like Gibson three thirty, not three thirty fives, but like one thirty fives and stuff like that. Yeah. They don't make a lot of those. No, they really don't. Right. And so if you have one, it is it is a special guitar to an extent, but still just bear in mind it's still mass market. And the same thing with Mesa. Like I don't think my Mark V is worth much more than anybody else's. Um I actually am really no, impressed with my local dealer. They go through a lot of Mesa equipment. But Mesa's Mesa's tend yeah. to when you sell them on the used market, Mesa's tend to hold the value. You can almost sell your Mesa boogie for which is bought it. I mean, I'm not saying you're gonna get full market value. But you'll get close. If you paid fifteen hundred dollars for that that amplifier, you'll get say twelve, thirteen hundred dollars for that amplifier, which is not a yeah. lot of loss. When you consider most guitars, you're gonna get about half. All right. So because I've got the wicker front, yep. um, that's kind of desirable because it's not the standard Ooh. like Mark V edition. Right. So um, that's automatically gonna give me a little bit more resale. But the thing is, like, even so, some of the ramps don't sell like that. Like the the Rectoverbs, I mean, those are fifteen hundred dollars new, and they sell for like between eight and a thousand bucks, eight hundred to a thousand dollars. Yeah, used. the one I'm looking at is actually a special edition color and all that. Yeah, but even then, like, they don't go for much more than more than a thousand bucks. Like I was watching one the other day that was complete. It it was uh, it had like it was like 
some sort of walnut or something. It was flamed, and it yeah, was like yeah. it was still. It went for like eleven fifty or something. And I'm like, wow, I'm, I thought that would have been more. Yeah, but because it's a cosmetic upgrade, and on the used market, that doesn't matter as much. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, um, depending on what tier and how hot the amp you have is from them, you're gonna make back your money in most cases. Now, like the old Mesa fifties and the Nomads and things like that. They don't go for as much as, like, say, the mainline stuff, like the um, the dual racks and triple racks and all that. But, again, you're getting better resale than you were to get, like, if you were to go and buy, like, an orange Tiny Terror or an orange uh, OR-15 or whatever. Um, There's just, you know, teach your own. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to make this into a Mesa-centric episode. It's just what I'm familiar with. Um, and I know that there are, they are a, a boutique manufacturer. I know they get kind of this bad rap of being just a, uh, another company just like Marshall, but they're really, they're not, they're, they're much smaller. Um, and they're much more customer focused and customer oriented. So, right. And it's, you know, that's the thing though. You start to get just like Dr. Z, you start to get into where, um, their stuff is much more specialized and focused um uh i don't know if i could say friedman was the same way. I did. well where you'll where you'll um you'll see uh the this particular thing is like mesa does their um let's when they when they do their their demonstration videos i'm trying to think about the right, right way to say this they do their demonstration videos they thank you for using their equipment, for allowing your, for trusting Mesa with your tone. That's what they say. And I don't feel like, yes, it's obviously marketing bullshit, but what other company says anything like that? You don't hear Marshall being like, thank you for using our amps. No. Because we're, we're, you know, we're proud of the sounds that you make. Like nobody says anything like that. Nope. It's just a little thing. that's like, either they have some very smart marketing people. And remember, I told you there's only like 13 people in that company or they really believe what they say. And I mean, honestly, Randall Smith is one of the few people, and I know he gets he gets shit on by Jeff Bober and other people. Yep. Um, but he's one of the few guys in the industry that does what he says. When when uh, Mason was getting fucked by Guitar Center, but with their with their high debts and stuff, what did he do? He said, "I treat them just like any other client that we have as a dealer," and he dropped them. He took the yeah. biggest amount of money that they had probably ever received and told them to go take a hike. I don't see Friedman doing that. No, um, so no, Friedman, they don't. It is shit. what it is. They don't give a shit, right? Honestly, um, Friedman is not. Going I don't want to say they don't give a shit. They, they, Jim, I'm sure they give a shit, but they, but they're not thinking about it the way that not, that like Mesa does. Well, because you're a bigger box. That's a, okay. When you're a bigger box, you can't give that one on one uh, to the customer if you're selling. That's why I mentioned the thousand um, amplifiers a month. Fender is pumping out thousands of amps of every type every month. And okay, let's let's put let's put this to the uh, to the group, and then we're ending the ending yeah. the hour here. Yep. Who's who's bigger? Do you think Mace is bigger or Friedman? Yeah. That's good a good. That's a good question because I'm not sure. I I don't know the answer to that. No, I don't. I don't. Um, I. I know that they have different business models in terms of how they produce their equipment. Yep. Uh, and I'll mention some, some skeptic sketchy, sketchy slash skeptical things in our group. Um, probably prior to the episode, even coming out 
about how Mesa has used other companies' designs and put their label on them and then made out like they made this product. Yep. Uh, I know of one in particular. So, yep. Um, well, everybody. But not to say that that's right or wrong. It's just no. that it's there. So, anyway, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I've been Jim. And I've been David. And we are and Buffalo not. <laughs> I just tried to get away from that. No, 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 no. We're not getting away from that. I'm going to wear that badge of honor. I'm telling you, mister. badge of shame. She doesn't look good at all. <laughs> I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me so hard. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Oh. You'll never get that image out of your head, will you, Jim? Yeah, just picture you tucking it in and dancing in front of a mirror. And <laughs> uh, was that Q Lazarus did that song, I think? <laughs> yes, I think you're right. I know the song. I might have to fly that in over this. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>